0: Welcome back to Serious Epidemiology. I am Matt Fox from the Boston University School of Public Health, and I am joined once again by my friend and co-host, Dr. Haley Bannock from the University of Buffalo. Haley, how are you doing?
1: I'm doing good, thanks. It's a, a very rainy Thursday today, so I'm glad to be inside chatting with you all.
0: And just to just to ground things, uh, because you know this won't air until the fall. Uh, what happened today in the Olympics?
1: Today, well, last night, last night, there was all this discussion of Simone Biles, um, you know, walking away and, and needing to do so for her mental health. And I support that and applaud that and am proud of her regardless.
0: Me too. Good for Simone. I say she's still the she is still the goat for no, que- no, no she question. About and it. even
1: though she's not Canadian, I will still support her in this Olympics, which is, you know, a big step for me.
0: Yeah, that's a big thing. You have real, real issues with the fact that in the United States, the only Olympic coverage is of the United States.
1: It is, you know, I I, I struggle with that. And Matt, for the record, for those who listen to a previous episode, this is the first year skateboarding is in the Olympics.
0: Yeah, you're right. You're you're right. I had to I was...
1: Wikipedia it afterwards.
0: But but I feel like I've seen it before. So what am I remembering?
1: like Saturday afternoon X Games or whatever they broadcast to fill the time on Saturdays.
0: Probably. You're probably right. Well, anyway, enough Olympic talk. So uh, for everyone who, who is joining mid-season, just a reminder that this season uh, of Serious Epi, we are devoting entirely to the new edition of Modern Epidemiology. And today we have a fantastic guest with us. So we are very pleased to welcome... Dr. Elizabeth Stewart to the podcast to talk about measures of disease frequency, something that Haley and I have uh, twisted ourselves in knots over that we thought was quite simple. But so we're very happy to have her here. Uh, Dr. Stewart is professor and vice dean for education at the Bloomberg School of Public Health at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore. She trained as a statistician, but her primary research interests are in the development and use of methodology to better design and analyze the causal effects of public health and educational interventions. She is also the most recent recipient of the Marshall Jaffe Award for Epidemiologic Methods at the Society for Epidemiologic Research. I have heard you say in the past, Liz, that you are not an epidemiologist, but we certainly consider you to be one. So welcome to the podcast, Liz.
2: Thank you. I'm super honored to be kind of an honorary epidemiologist, even though I don't have formal training in the field.
0: I, you know, as far as I, so what makes somebody an epidemiologist? As far as I'm concerned, you have, you have done more for the development of methods in the field than, than most people who call themselves epidemiologists. So I don't see, I don't see any distinction
2: there. Oh, well, I appreciate that. I I, I straddle a lot of worlds. And so it's always it's incredibly gratifying as a statistician to then be able to make these contributions in different fields. And and I'm happy to be an epidemiologist and an education researcher and a mental health researcher and whatnot. So um, but you all I think the epi the epi crowd might be among the most fun.
0: That's what we want to hear. We'll take that title. Gold medal for us. But we, 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 were, we were happy to be on the podium, but knowing that we get the gold medal is even better. So uh, before we get started, we, we always like to ask a few questions just so that our guests can get to know you a better, uh, a bit better. And so, uh, you know, as we're discussing the Olympics, uh, we wanted to ask you if you could choose to compete in the Olympic sport, either summer or winter, With, you know, no understanding that this has to relate in any way to skills you actually have, just the one that you think would be uh, the most interesting or most fun to compete in, what would it be?
2: It would be tennis. My, like, one of my main regrets in life was not playing tennis in high school. All of my friends were on the track team. And so I did track and I was horrible. I came in last in, like, every single race. And I think if I had done tennis, I (laughs) might have been at least not last. (laughs) Um, and so tennis has always been my kind of like oh I wish I what could have been but I also want to say back to your conversation um, Haley my husband is Canadian and the U.S. coverage drives him crazy as well because um, yeah so I I feel (laughs) the pain
1: (laughs) oh good I'm glad I'm glad I'm not the only one that feels so strongly about this topic
0: (laughs) It's nope. an important one. It's an important one. I Are there not like Canadian channels you can watch?
1: You can't get them here.
0: Wow. Okay. Well, yeah. there you go. Um, so second question, are you or do you consider yourself a morning person or a night owl?
2: Oh, totally morning. We are, I'm up at like 5, 520 every day and Whoa. currently for exercise and stuff. Normally I have a long commute. So um, yeah, but then we're, you know in bed, 10, 1030. So definitely morning.
0: So, so, and were you always this way? Or is this something that has developed later in life?
2: Uh, I would say always I, you know, like in college, I was the one who would be like, first to leave the hallway and just go to bed and was never one for staying <laughs> up late. So yeah, I think it's it's and now my own children have very much uh, are following in my footsteps in this regard
0: that's a good thing. I, so I was always a, I was always a night owl until, uh, I started aging and now I can't, I cannot <laughs> sleep in past whenever the sun comes up. I just can't do it.
1: Yeah. I do notice that you often respond to emails at like 6am on the dot. And I get it many hours later, um, because you seem to be very productive in those early hours, Matt.
0: Okay. Well, we can, we, we, we can have a conversation about the reason for that later, but, um, Um, And so my last question, would you rather live in a place where it only snows or in a place where the temperature never falls below 100 degrees?
2: Definitely the snow location. I grew up in New Hampshire and love winter activities. I will say I love living in Washington, D.C., but I feel like the summers are horrible, it's way too hot, and the winters are kind of blah, and we don't even, like, we don't get the fun of skating and skiing and snowshoeing and all that stuff. So um, I'm much happier bundling up and going outside into the snow uh, than I am dealing with 100 degree temperatures.
1: So you're basically Canadian with that answer. I mean, only Canadians give that kind of answer, <laughs> you know, is kind of close to, to the border. <laughs>
2: I think I'm basically Canadian. Yeah, I, I I take that as a compliment, and yes, agree, and and it's yes. helpful because my husband and I then are very aligned in our um, vacation sorts of plans and things like that.
0: All right, so good to get to know a little bit more about you. So now let's jump into this this chapter. So chapter four of this textbook begins the process of talking about the what what we think of as the basic. Building blocks of epidemiology and statistical methods, which are measures of disease frequency. Essentially, how do we count and summarize disease? Um, so, when we uh, recorded the episode that, that Haley and I did talking about this chapter, I was, I, I, well, not under the, I feel very strongly that the first part of the chapter, where they talk about types of populations and cohorts, is the harder part of this chapter. Whereas Haley, in her infinite wisdom, felt that the uh, the second part, where they talk about incidents and rates and things like that, is the more difficult part of the chapter. So when when you went through, what was which which do you find the more challenging?
2: So for me, the second part was definitely more difficult. I will say, as a statistician, yes. yeah, yeah, oh. I guess I'm team Haley on this one. Uh, as a statistician, I never learned this stuff. Like I. I never learned this formally and have kind of picked it up here and there. Um, You know, it's one of these times where people, I think, assume that statisticians get training in all of these different areas. But there's huge sort of things like this of like different ways to measure things that I've just never actually learned. Um, And so, yeah, totally second part. Team Haley.
0: Okay, so I, I, then I have a follow-up question on that because it, it I think it raises a really interesting point, and you know because you, in addition to the the hat that you wear as as a methodologist and a, and a statistician, you're also uh, very focused on education. I I'm curious whether, in your experience, maybe the way that that things are taught at Hopkins, um, whether you find there's a disconnect between. Um, the way that we teach uh, biostatistics and epidemiology and whether that ever causes problems? Or do you, in your program, you know, integrate them very, very well, such that they sort of, people are coming at it from a very um, coherent you know, viewpoint?
2: Well, of course, you know, we do a great job. And <laughs> um, yeah, very cohesive. Um, you no, know, I think for me, one of the big things that comes up is, and uh, this was, this took me a long time when I was first teaching in public health, was in my pre-public health world, I very much was usually dealing with continuous outcomes. And it was interesting to me because some people, I Mm -hmm. think, just come Mm -hmm. to the conversation assuming a continuous outcome and other people come to a conversation assuming a binary outcome. And the the epi types tend to be sort of more in that binary outcome world. And what's interesting to me is I think there's. Subtle differences that then come out where you can easily be sort of talking across each other because of this sort of different underlying sense of kind of what you're talking about. So I've learned over time to be really explicit about, oh, here's like the conclusions when it is continuous or here's the implications and then, oh, here are the additional complications or, you know, whether it's conditional or marginal Effects or things like that, um, and so I've just learned over time to try to be really explicit about the sort of data. Because if you're not, I think that can be what really causes some complications.
0: So that's that's actually such a great point because Haley and I, in uh, many of our conversations, ask the question: Are you a risk person or a rate person? Like we don't even we don't even <laughs> entertain the idea that it would ever be a continuous variable. <laughs> it's a question of. You know, what's the best way to summarize that categorical or or, or, or dichotomous variable? <laughs> it's true. Um, so that's really interesting. I mean, because, you know, I, in my training, there was definitely, um, you know, it, it, the biostats was taught by the, the biostatistics department, the epi was taught by the epi department. And, you know, the epi department was where I got much more of the focus on You know, causation, and in the stats department was where I got much more of the focus on how do we model the data, whether you are talking about causation or or not. And you know, I've always thought that maybe we would do better for the students if we really kind of came together and and thought through what's the what's the ideal way to to teach this so that they are getting a very coherent message. I don't know if that's something that you all are, are are thinking about at all.
2: Yeah, definitely. I think um, that that comes up to some extent. We more and more are having classes that try to cut across. Uh, So I teach a course on causal inference where yeah, often they've kind of they have the EPI baseline and the biostat baseline. And then it is in my class that we kind of grapple with some of these sorts of things. Um, John Jackson is another person who's teaching a class that sort of I think is cutting across to some extent. Those are more for the PhD students. I think there's probably yeah. more we could do, especially for the master's students.
0: Absolutely. Um, okay, so in terms of this chapter, are there were there things that that kind of stood out to you as being either particularly novel or particularly insightful?
2: Yeah, you know, as I was implying earlier, I certainly there was a lot I learned <laughs> in this chapter and kind of the well, you know, there are complications with it, but sort of the clarity of thinking through the different sort of inadvertent biases that can come in if you're not clear about how you define things. And I think for me, as someone who is a causal inference person primarily, um, I think it was it's just really helpful to have that clarity about who is the population, um, again, sort of what are the biases in sort of numerators and denominators, and again, in ways that might be fairly subtle. I will say I, my original, like my dissertation research was more in education research and there there's similar aspects with cohorts with like students moving in and out of schools and sort of, you have to think carefully about like, yeah, well, so who is the population? Is it the school, whoever is there at the time, or is it this set of kids and we want to try to track them. But what's interesting to me is that I think that the epi world is a lot more clear about how to think that through. Like education research, they they do it in certain ways. But um, so for me, it was that clarity of just being super explicit about the cohorts and the implications of these different sorts of definitions um, that I thought was really helpful and insightful. Uh,
0: okay. So it's worth emphasizing that you just use the word cohort and how you define cohorts because Haley and I have been having this, this conversation uh, regularly and repeatedly over the past, what? Four or five days. Because what's interesting about this chapter is they make a distinction between populations and cohorts. And yet it's not entirely clear to me, and I've said this on a, on our previous episode, that I, I've kind of stopped actually teaching about populations and just focus on cohorts because I, I get myself uh you know tied in knots when I actually start to to think through. Do you think there is is a need to make the distinction between populations and cohorts, given that, you know, for 95% of what I I read and what I think about, we're really talking about the, we're, we're talking about cohorts, even if the, you know, if the design of the study is a, let's say a case control study, it's still, there's still an underlying cohort. It's not some, you know, completely, completely open population. So does the does the distinction between populations and cohorts something that comes up in your daily life a, a, as a, an epidemiologist slash statistician?
2: Or whatever I am. Yes. Um, <laughs> I think to, to me, the, uh, the, the big distinction is, I guess I, I, I still think the distinction is important. And I say that because I think okay. that we want to be really clear what the population we care about is, like who are we trying to learn about and then the cohort is who do we actually have data on? And so I, you know, I think in some ways, study sample and cohort may sometimes be a little more interchangeable. Where and like a cohort, which I would say is a, a group of people that you're following over time, population is who we might want to learn about. I would say a cohort is a specific type of study sample. And Haley, really, yeah, the study population I think is maybe a, a hard to defined clearly within my sort of way of thinking about this, but I would think the study population might be, yeah, similar to the cohort or the study sample, um, but maybe an implication that they are of interest. And and in part, I'm sort of harping on this because I, I will say one of the things I think students often don't get taught enough, or we as researchers don't think about enough, is who is missing from our data. You know, the sort of we wanna be learning about mm-hmm. some population and then we have data in front of us. And those are not necessarily the, the the people we have in front of us of us, the people we have data on are not necessarily the population we actually care about. And so I, I think it's really important to keep that distinction and this reminder of like who are we missing? Um, and so that's why I, I try to distinguish those in that way.
0: So that's a that's a, a really helpful way to think about it. I you know, when I thought about it when i read through the chapter in my mind i was thinking well so we're having this discussion of whether you can have an open cohort or whether a cohort by definition means you are you are it's closed because once you're in the cohort you know you're always in the cohort even if you're lost to follow up you're still a member of the cohort we just can't observe you. And I wondered whether the distinction between population and cohort is made here because you you could think about an maybe not an open cohort, but an open population that you were interested in, in studying. But I, I just think the reality is we don't do that all that often such that, you know, maybe the, the distinction is there for situations that we just probably don't encounter all that often.
2: Yeah, that's interesting. I guess the way I think about it is like you could have an open population if it was, for example, um, you're trying to study people in Boston, Massachusetts, and people are moving in and out of Boston, but you're interested in sort of the health of Boston and you are collecting data on them. And, And so they could be sort of coming in and out of living there. To make this a little more concrete, too, and maybe this is something we can come back to, I do a lot of work on um, like health policy evaluations, where we're often using insurance claims data. So, for example, we might be like looking at the effects of some state opioid policy, uh, you know, sort of a PDMP or some kind of policy that's put in place at the state level, and the data we have is, say, insurance claims for people in private receiving private health care insurance from some particular insurers so we always have this debate of whether to have what will, what is sometimes called a continuously enrolled sample of sort of like okay we have we're trying to study the effects of this policy for 5 years do we restrict attention do we restrict our data to only those people who are in the sample for all 5 years or do we just use whoever's there you know at any month in the data set and this comes up all the time and is really it's always sort of a struggle to think through like the benefit of the kind of what I in some ways I think the analogy of a closed cohort is the continuously enrolled sample where you know that you have data for them for all five years and you have a consistent group of people there's no case mix changes over time you have covariates observed on them because you observe them for a long period of time the drawback, though, is that they are probably less representative. They are people who maybe you know have continuous enrollment in the sense that they are insured by the same insurer for, for five years, like they have more stable employment, for example. So sometimes we might do the not require that. And so that is sort of analogous to more of an open cohort where in any given month, we just use data from whoever is in the data in that month. But the problem there, so it's more representative, it's whoever is there, but we don't have a consistent group over time. So it gets harder to make comparisons over time. And you don't necessarily have the same amount of data for each person, because some you might have three months of data for and others you might have five years of data for. So I do think that the distinction matters and both are useful. And so again, I think for me, it's partly just being super explicit about what you're doing and then
1: the implications of that that is so helpful that is such a great example of when this really matters from a practical cuz i think part of why matt and i were getting so tangled the other day is that we were having trouble coming up with a concrete ex- example of of when this matters and i think that i think that in your example that you just gave with the the insurance claims database so you you have this choice between what you described as a closed population or an open population when you make that choice to whichever one you go with would you then say that that is your study cohort for the whatever analysis that you are 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 doing would you is that how we could connect those two concepts
2: good question i think <laughs> Maybe this is semantics, but if it's the continuously enrolled sample, I would call that a cohort. Sort of it's a cohort of people we observe for five years. If it's the non-continuously enrolled sample, so where it's sort of month to month changing, I don't think I would call that a cohort. I would call that our study sample or our, you know, the enroll, you know, the included sample, something like that. But I for me. Cohort implies, you know, consistent longitudinal measurement on the same group of people, um, and so I would make I I don't think I would use cohort for the for the non continuously enrolled data set. So that
1: so, so this reminds me of a paper that Miguel Hernan had a few years ago, maybe more than a few years ago now, about looking at hormone replacement therapy, and he he broke things into two-year chunks. And so in the, trying to cut, bring back to uh, the analogy that you just had, um, if it were an open population, you could have a cohort enrolled for July, 2021, and then a cohort enrolled for um, August, 2021, you know, so you could structure it in a way where you have True. cohorts within your population, I think. Yep. And in and the same way, in, in Miguel's analysis with the hormone therapy he had, where use user for this I think it was a two year block, this two year block versus that two year block versus the last two year block, et cetera. So you are constructing cohorts from within your population.
2: Yes, yes. And to extend that, one analysis might use multiple cohorts by that definition.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. Yeah. Right.
0: So, 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 can I just ask here, because I'm just thinking through that example that you gave, and I, I have to just explain to the listeners when, when, Haley was talking previously. She paused at some point. That's because I have this habit of making funny faces when I'm confused about something or um, maybe disagree. So I will try and stop doing that, Haley, so I don't uh, cause you to stop. But the, what's interesting to me about the example that you gave is, well, I guess I'm curious. I mean, do we do we really care about a population of people who are insured in that case, or are we just using the insurance because that's where we can find the data. But really what we care about is, you know, how a particular policy might affect, you know, anybody, in which case we're, we're using, we, we, as Kayla said, I mean, we could then define cohorts or as, as you, you pointed out, we could define cohorts from within the insurance claims database to be able to to avoid that um, open population, or assuming we want to avoid it, I always assume we want to avoid open populations because I think of closed populations as easier to understand what I'm doing. But maybe I'm I'm making an assumption there that's not true. But do you do we actually care in that case about the open population, or in the example you gave of the health of the population of Boston? I suppose you know a health department might be interested in that from a Surveillance standpoint, but from once we sort of build into thinking about um, you know ideology or 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 you know policy effects, are we interested in open populations still?
2: I think yes, or or we can be, and I think that the key is to be clear that like there's not one right answer all the time, and that it it is going to depend. So typical statistician answer, you know. I, So yeah, ideally we are all in, ideally from a data perspective, we are all in Scandinavia and we have like all of this data on everyone in the country. The challenge that you alluded to is like, the problem is, yeah, we might have a a law that was passed in Pennsylvania. We might want to study that. We don't actually have data on everyone in Pennsylvania longitudinally, et cetera. And so then we are using the private health insurance claims to get, to at least give us a sense for you know what is happening at least for that group but again back to my early, to the points around being clear about the data you have and the data you don't have it's important and of course in all of the write-ups we sort of make it clear look this is the privately insured population and for a substance use treatment policy this might not be you know this is not the whole group that we care about but we can still we can learn about it in this group Um, And then, you know, maybe do other analyses to learn about the other populations. But, you know, sort of that, let's use the data that we do have to learn at least about some subgroup and, and then sort of do other studies for other purposes. And I do think that the open population can be useful for policy evaluation. I mean, if, you know, if I'm the health insurer and I'm trying to get a sense for costs, or if I am the mayor of Boston and I'm trying to get a sense for demand on the healthcare system or the substance use treatment system, the open population might be actually what is really relevant, because it's like, I need to serve the people who are in Boston, you know, at any given point in time. And so it's, that's sort of my, my goal. But yeah, for other purposes, etiology or other sorts of things, it might be that it's less relevant.
0: And I and I think that's really where I, I'm probably getting hung up on something that, that is um you know is not quite right is I'm very, very focused on, you know, sort of thinking of this chapter only as a building block to the next chapter, which gets at measures of of effect and measures of association. But but you're right. I mean, we're really talking about measures of disease frequency, and therefore we're not talking about etiology. We can be talking about descriptive epidemiology, surveillance, you know, potentially prediction. Things that, where you're right, I mean, an open population might actually be the the one that we want to be targeting and summarizing.
1: That's what I was going to say in response, Matt. Uh, to your point, um, I guess I have two points to make. First is that uh, there is a lot of epidemiology beyond etiology. And, you're you know, right. Right. there, I think- COVID in particular has highlighted that for all of us, but the tremendous value of surveillance and descriptive epidemiology and the complexities of surveillance and descriptive epidemiology, because the populations can be so hard to define sometimes, those are really challenging topics. So I I do appreciate that they're discussed in the book. And the second uh, issue is about closed populations. If you have a, I know that we've talked about previously that we're both risk people over rate people, I think. Um, And, you know, with a a closed population, um, certainly, you know, that makes sense why you prefer the closed population because you're a risk person. Those two things kind of go hand in hand with each other. If you were a rate person, perhaps you would be more comfortable with the open population concept because, you know, the rate concept, you know, is very closely tied with the person time concept, with the the open population concept. Figuring out who exactly is in and out; those two concepts are are related. And so, I, I can see your answer making sense because I know that you are a risk person.
0: I guess then, and this is this is really a question for for both of you. But so, I I think what you've you've done here is convinced me that there is a real need for this distinction between, not a distinction. I mean, there's always a need for the distinction, but there's there's a need to, to truly understand both open and closed populations. So then, but just to put a, a really fine point on it, then when we move into causal inference and etiologic epidemiology, then does it still make sense to be, would we ever think about trying to do causal inference in an open population or in an open cohort, if there is such a thing?
2: Uh, yes, I think so. And and I think the, just to step back for a second, what I like about this conversation is just this reminder for everyone, listeners and us, that there's not going to be a sort of like, this is always better than that, that sort of what we need to be doing and teaching is sort of understanding yeah, right. the strengths and limitations. And that sort of for this purpose, for surveillance the open population makes sense but for some causal inference questions maybe it doesn't and i think that's where uh really understanding kind of the goals of a of a particular study and then how this data set construction and data availability matches or doesn't match that is is crucial and so now Matt, to answer your question about causal inference i think it can matter and again i I do a lot of work where we're interested, maybe it's not, well, this is maybe a question, maybe it's not epidemiology, but I do a lot of work where we're interested in like a school decision or, you know, the effects of some intervention at a school level, or again, like a state policy. And in that context, a lot of the time, the open cohort is the relevant group uh, for causal inference, because it's like the school is serving the kids that are in the school at that point in time. And we want to know, like, is, you know, this reading program or this behavior program better than that behavior program for the kids that the school serves? The challenge is that the open cohort leads to analysis challenges because of this problem that, well, if different sorts of kids come to the school because of the reading program, um, you can have these sort of selection biasy type challenges with the cohort changing over time. So it causes challenges, but I think that the goal of the inference could easily be the open cohort. Then the question is, how do we deal with that when we're actually analyzing the data?
0: Okay. So then, but then in sort of thinking it through though, and I like the example that you just gave there because I I, I think it is, and by the way, does it, it certainly doesn't matter whether it's truly epidemiology or not. It's, you know, it's, <laughs> it's causal inference and the effects of, of some exposure and some outcome. But in that case I mean what so then what would the question really be I mean is the is the idea that we are interested in the effect of let's say some educational policy only on people who are in the population at the time that they're in the population or are we interested in the effects of that population of that intervention on people you know anybody from the time that they enter the the population until forever in which case then we could we could still think of it as a a closed population it's just that the time of entry isn't calendar time it's it's um you know it's time of becoming a member of the the school
2: oh that's interesting yeah i mean if we sort of broaden our definition it's like maybe the population really is kids in a particular city or something. And, you know, whether they enter the school or not at a given point in time, um, this is where my brain might get fried. Again, I think I would just go back to the the need to be Mine too. Clear. Us
1: too. <laughs> Great.
2: Yeah. You know, I yeah, just yeah. go back to the sort of the specific context and say, okay, for this study, who is our relevant inference population? And sometimes it might be the kids in the school in year one. And we say, this is just who we're going to sort of be trying to estimate effects for. Or we might be trying to project out and say, yeah, we want to sort of imagine what the effects are on sort of kids who might come later. And, And I think this is, maybe this is a little off topic for today, but I think one of the real benefits of causal inference as a field is that we I think are really clear about what we want to estimate and then how do we estimate it and what are the assumptions needed to do so and so like in this example with the schools I think step one is to have a quest uh, have a conversation with the scientific researchers to say like who is the population of kids you care about and sort of how do we want to define that and then say okay now what data do we have and how do we sort of use our data to get at the thing that we're trying to get to. But really separating that and not, I think we can, in a lot of studies, we can run into trouble when we sort of don't take that step of first just being super clear about the quantity that we're trying to estimate. And that's when it can get, yeah, just messy.
0: But it seems to me it it, it really, it, I mean, as you point out, it really does matter because the two questions that I proposed are, are very different questions. I mean, the the mm-hmm. actual results probably don't differ all that much if the population isn't all that, uh, changing all that much, you know, But but it's a different question as to if you're asking simply, if you're asking about what is the effect of a policy on kids who experience it at some point, regardless of what happens to them afterwards, whether they stay in the school or not, or if you're asking the question of what is the effect on kids who are, actively enrolled in the school and the the reason I say that is um, you know sort of I everything for me when I try to think about effects goes back to the the counterfactual model and I don't I don't know how to incorporate into the counterfactual model this idea of a transient population I, is that anything that you've either thought about or come across
2: yeah I guess I would say that the way to me it comes across I uh, like you, I, I think of causal inference in sort of potential outcomes slash counterfactuals to me, where this comes in is who is the expectation being taken over? So, you know, we can never really estimate individual level causal effects. So we are taking an average of causal effects across Mm -hmm. some well-defined population. And so the question is if, you know, back to the binary continuous, but if we think of like expectation of Y one minus Y zero, like Difference in potential outcomes mm-hmm. across some population. Yeah, who is what's the subscript on that population? And is it the kids in the school in 2020, or is it kids in the school between 2015 and 2025? Again, though, so step one is is defining that. And different studies will define that differently. And, and I think that's fine. And I have seen some that even try to do both. The second question then, of course, will be what Mm -hmm, data mm -hmm. is available and what assumptions are required. And sometimes people might change what they're trying to estimate because they realize, well, we just can't do this thing. Like we might ideally want to estimate, you know, the effect on all kids at all times, but that's just not feasible. I think the other important thing to note is that this doesn't always matter, right? Like that really what we're talking about here, like Mm -hmm. these distinctions matter if there's sort of underlying heterogeneity. So either underlying heterogeneity and risk or underlying heterogeneity in, in effects. And I think the challenge is that mm-hmm, some mm-hmm. sometimes some fields implicitly assume there's some ground truth, that the effect is two all the time. And whoever comes in, whoever comes out, there's sort of some constant, like I think in some medical fields, they sort of want to have this idea that like there is a ground true effect and it's two. And I think what the, the sorts of complications we're talking about here are particularly relevant when that isn't the case, when in reality, you know, there is different risk across time or there are different effects for people at different different sorts of people. And so I think that's like this sort of heterogeneity is underlying a lot of the complications that we're kind of talking about.
1: Matt, I think one of the reasons that you and I struggled with this concept so... Um so much the other day um, is because it really it's such a cliche epi answer, but it really does depend. I mean sure. any of the mm-hmm. populations could be valid, whether it's closed or open, right you know you can call it your study cohort, you can call it your study population to a degree. it really depends on the context that you are are talking about. Not that one is necessarily truth. And where I think we kept getting tangled is we kept throwing back and forth these examples to each other. Um, You know, how about this one? What about this one? And in each one, it really could require a whole episode in and of itself to discuss, you know, what is the best answer for that example. And these are not simple in that there is a lot of nuance to making that decision for whatever you know, particular question you're trying to answer, not that it's any more correct to answer it for one versus the other. It's just what you're interested in, like any research question.
0: Yep. I I, I think that's so well said. And I I, I couldn't agree more. And I do think that this, what this conversation has really done for me has helped me decouple the idea of disease frequency from from measures of effect and association, because they are related, but they are, you, you can have you know, dis- measures disease frequency completely independent of, uh, you know, using that for associational or, or, or causal purposes. And therefore, you know, you, the, the way that you define the population that you're going to measure those in may be very different depending on your, your goal.
1: So let me ask this question then. I know Matt in the past has referred to these um, distinctions between populations, open, closed, you know, all that stuff um, as sort of a semantic kind of intellectual, epi, nerdy kind of topic. I added that last part. He's just called it semantic. I've I've added in the the adjectives. So to both of you, um, do you think this discussion is just semantic? Because I now have a, a particular view that I actually don't think it's semantic. I think it's actually quite an important discussion to have um, that we don't have often enough, perhaps, and maybe that's why we struggle with it. We're not as comfortable or well versed in in some of this terminology because we take it for granted sometimes. But uh, to each of you, do you think this is a semantic discussion, or do you think we should be having this more often?
2: I think we should be having it more often. I don't think it is just semantics. And Haley, I would like echo your comment about the specific cases being incredibly useful. I think partly it starts to feel like semantics when it's talked about in generality uh, and sort of just these overall general concepts. I, I think that it is incredibly helpful to talk through specific examples to grapple with these different choices, and actually, where my brain was going was like it could be very cool to have a teaching exercise with like I don't know five case studies of very different sorts of settings where each of these makes sense in these different scenarios, and you sort of see that yeah okay open makes sense in this sense in this one and closed makes sense there and a risk and rate and you know all of these things because um, it does depend, and I think helping people in the field grapple with that and think it through in specific cases um, is really an incredibly useful exercise.
1: So for the record, for those keeping track, Liz has been on my team twice. <laughs> Score is two nothing Haley to Matt.
0: That, that's true. But I, I think I've got like a, a Hail Mary three pointer in my back pocket that I can uh, pull out here. No, I let me just answer the question. I'm I'm on team Haley now. I Yes. I And I think it's because, you know, I've been way too focused on where I thought this was going as opposed to where it actually is and why it would matter. Now, when I just to clarify, when I was talking about, you know, semantics, I was saying, you know, I think it's semantics in the sense that is the fact that I understand this or don't understand this going to change the way that I do my analysis. And I'm not I'm not sure it would, but it would absolutely affect the way I would communicate it and you know the way I might think about how I would use this. So in that sense, I I I think you're right. I'm I've changed my mind, Haley. All you, right. You and Liz have changed me.
1: It was Liz. I was just, you know, along for the ride. She explained this to both of us. Well, <laughs> okay, enough. so
0: then let me let me get into just the last thing that I want to ask you about, which is so you know, we've sort of been talking about study populations and cohorts. Um, you've done a lot of work. And in fact, you know, I, I am always remembering that the the way that you and I met was we were, we were doing a, a seminar together for SER, in which I had to, to pinch hit for someone. I can't remember the details of why. And you had to explain to me all of this stuff about, uh, uh, you know, target populations so that I didn't end up making a fool of myself. Um, can you can you talk to us a little bit about how you think about target populations um, and how these concepts of, of external validity and target populations relate to each other?
2: Yeah, I think it it's really a continuation of what we've of some of what we've talked about already. To me, this the target population is this when we're thinking about like what are we trying to estimate. It's the group that we are trying to estimate that for, and so if we're taking In statistics speak for a little bit, um, if we're taking an expectation, who is that expectation being taken over? Ideally, sort of not in our data set, but ideally, like if we have a policy or practice decision or we're trying to understand disease etiology in some population, what is that population? Is it people in Boston? Is it people in Massachusetts? Is it people in the United States? Um, Is it people over age 65? You know, sort of that kind of who are we trying to learn about? The challenge and sort of what we're, one of the themes from today is the data that we have often doesn't exactly match that target population. And so then in any given study, we need to be thinking about how do we use the data we have as well as possible, but where we still have that target population sort of in mind and and we're, we're targeting it. Um, and or is it that we just can't <laughs> target it and we have to be upfront that in reality, our analysis is for this other, you know, slightly different population and just acknowledge that that may or may not really be reflecting our true target population.
0: I, I think that's a really helpful distinction and I, I think it's it's so important that we understand that. Well, this has been an absolutely Fascinating conversation. I got so much out of this. So, Liz, I just want to thank you so much for being willing to do this.
2: It was a lot of fun. I, I like uh, hanging out with the epidemiologists and I learned a lot too. So, it was great. I'll come back anytime.
0: Oh, yes, please. Fabulous. For those of you who are not members of the Society for Epidemiologic Research, we want to strongly recommend that you consider becoming a member. Membership gets you a discounted fee for the annual meeting, which is coming up in june in chicago it also gets you access to the ser library which contains a whole bunch of really great learning materials seminars and activities you can find out more at epiresearch.org we also want to plug our sister podcast from the american journal of epidemiology which is casual inference if you like this podcast we think you will like that one so we really appreciate you appreciate you listening and we hope you'll look out for our next episode Just a reminder that the views expressed in this podcast by both the hosts and any of our guests are ours and their views alone and do not represent the views or opinions of the Society for Epidemiologic Research.